What's going on, y'all? I just want to start off by saying I, I don't think I've dressed this nice my entire life. So I, this, I mean, everyone has first, so this is mine, I guess. Um, I just want to say I'm really excited and I'm blessed to be here. And I, can, I think I can speak on behalf of Josh when I say this, too. Uh, we're really blessed to be a part of such a great church home. And uh, ever since I joined the youth group in sixth grade, I never really thought that I was going to be staying up here speaking. Like, I, I think, like, when I was in sixth grade, I think, like, Parker Teal and those guys were up there preaching. I, I was like, I never thought that I would be staying up here right now giving this message, but, you know, here I am. <laughs> but um, as I give a brief introduction of myself, uh, feel free to flip open your copy of God's Word to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's what Josh and I are going to be looking at today and uh, giving our message on. Uh, my name is Ryan Estes. I'm 17 years old, and I go to Coxmill High School. Um, and I've been a member of this church my entire life. Uh, I got dedicated to this church on the same day as the, the dude sitting right there, and he's going to come finish off the message. And uh, we got dedicated to this church in October of 2002. And um, over the summer... Uh, I'm hoping to be spending my summer at uh, Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, being a member of the what they call the servant team there, and like doing the dirty work and stuff around campus. And uh, I'll probably be there along with some of the Epic uh, who's sitting up there. And uh, it's a summer camp that our youth goes to and our Epic goes to. And uh, then in the fall, uh, I'll, after I'll be graduating Cox Mill, uh, I'm hoping to be attending probably UNC Charlotte right now. And uh, we'll just see where, what God does in my life uh, in preparation for college and all that, all that jazz. So uh, as I was introducing myself, I hope that you all are able to flip open your copy of God's Word to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, I do want to stop here and just go ahead and say that for the book of Ecclesiastes, there's no concrete preacher but it is very much understood that, the, that it's very much assumed that the preacher is Solomon because it follows the time span of his life and all that. And so uh, beginning, uh, continuing to verse 2, it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear is filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of later things yet to come, of those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under heaven, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I apply my heart to know wisdom and know madness and folly. I perceive that this, that this also is but a striving after wind. For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, uh, I thank you for this day. And I thank you that you've 
uh, laid this opportunity on Josh and I to give this message to this great congregation this morning, God. And I just pray that you give, uh, you hide Sucks and I behind the cross and give us the words that you want this congregation to hear this morning, Lord. And uh, in your name, I pray, amen. Howard Hughes was one of the richest men to ever walk on the face of this earth. While he was alive, he accumulated over $1.5 billion in his time, which in today's time, that is $7 billion, which that's a billion with a B, so that's a lot of money. Uh, he was a pilot, director, and an investor. During his life, he was able to influence many governments. He controlled the destinies of thousands of people, and he made billions of dollars through his wise investments as an investor, and he eventually married a beautiful movie star. But even with all his accomplishments that he had, that he had gotten in his life, he still lived a joyless life, and he moved from one place to another, and eventually he stopped taking care of his personal, like, he's, he had terrible personal hygiene towards the end of his life, and then he eventually got into stuff like drugs. And then if you've seen, if you know this man, or you've seen photos of him towards the end of his life, you can see that, obviously, since his personal hygiene had gotten worse and worse, he has, like, he has matted hair, his fingernails are, like, over two inches long, and, and this was, like, after the drugs and all that stuff, and so... Uh, despite him having everything that money could possibly buy him in his life, he still lived a joyless and a very fruitless life, and he couldn't find one thing, and that was meaning in life. And so he ended up dying as a lonely, sad, and despairing man. Now, yes, I understand, like, this is a really extreme example, but this is exactly what Solomon is touching on in this passage of Scripture. Well, Howard Hughes, while he was on this life, well, yes, he may have been deemed a very successful man to the world and all that, and despite having all the possessions that a man could possibly, like, with that money could possibly buy, he still lived a very joyless, and he died a sad and despairing death. Mark 8.36 says, for what, is it, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? This, soul? this story clearly shows that in the grand course of Howard Hughes' life, earthly things of this world that he had attained had meant absolutely nothing, and they were still not able to give him a happy and a joyful life. The story of Howard Hughes actually greatly correlates to the story of Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes here, and who is deemed as the wealthiest and the wisest man to ever walk on the face of this earth. But despite that, he still found himself straying from the Lord, and he strayed from the creator of the universe. He fell into temptations such as lust and idolatry. And with all of Solomon's wealth, power, and accomplishments, there was always something missing whenever he strayed and he left God. One of the main themes of the entire book of Ecclesiastes is that it's the, it's, the, it's the search for satisfaction. And now, yes, like I said before, Solomon is the writer, uh, the assumed writer of Ecclesiastes. And the theologian, uh, Norman Geisler, he says that Solomon's mature years was when he wrote the, wrote the, book, the book of Proverbs. And then once he was in his declining years, he transitioned into, into his worser years was when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. The purpose of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, to get the point across to the believer and any Christian, is that everything uh, under the sun, which is a phrase that's used in verse 3, and it's a phrase that's used around 30 times in this book, so obviously it's something that he's trying to get, it's a phrase that he's using to get his point across, and so everything under the sun is capable of, is incapable of fulfilling and giving a purpose and meaning in life as God can. And so even though Psalms' experiences can be correlated with what's being talked about in Scripture, here, Solomon doesn't want believers and Christians to listen and benefit from the actual experiences themselves. He wants us to be able to learn from the principles that can be drawn from these experiences. And so as you look more specifically in chapter 1, the overall point that's stated in verse 2 is that all is vanity. Now obviously notice here it doesn't say some, and it doesn't say like here, some here, some there. It says all is vanity. It's a clear and concise all. Now here to better understand the statement 
it helps to better understand what the word vanity comes from. The word vanity comes from the Hebrew word hevel, which means meaningless. And the, and the actual Hebrew word hevel, or vanity, it's used around 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as Dr. John MacArthur says, it's more of like a dictionary definition for this word, it says it's used to express the futile attempt to be satisfied in this life apart from God. Now, as we look uh, previously at the life of uh, Howard Hughes before, despite obtaining all that a man could possibly obtain here on the earth, he still didn't feel satisfied or fulfilled. This is because the psalmist clearly states that from his past experiences, in verse 2, everything on earth and under the sun is vanity. And contrary to what Howard Hughes or any unbeliever may think, it's meaningless and will not give you any fulfillment. When talking about Solomon's life, Solomon throughout uh, his life took advantage of the blessings that God had given him for his own good and not, not to glorify God. Again, earthly desires and pleasures, they fall into this category of things under the sun and they'll never bring fulfillment. Luckily, Solomon did realize later in his life that these things were vanity and they're meaningless. And so he was able to write, write this book and he was able to warn the following generations of believers not to fall into the same error that he had, that he had done during his life. The first point that can be drawn from this passage of Scripture is that man gains nothing from life apart from God. Now, obviously, yes, I do want to start off by saying, like, yeah, you can, you can, you can, gain, you can gain stuff on this earth from the work and, like, the work and whatever hustle you may, you may do on this earth. But it's not going it, to, obviously, it's not going to come with you when you pass from this earth. And so if you all take a look with me at, a, at verse 3, it says, What does a man gain by all the toilet which he toils under the sun? This is stated in Scripture as a rhetorical question, and, uh, all, and actually I think it can be looked at as a before, which is a rhetorical question that gives an immediate answer, given that the following verses in Scripture, they help to give an immediate answer to, to this question. Now yes, things that, the flesh can, or things that the flesh offer can maybe sustain your life on earth, but they'll never be able to sustain eternity and, actually, and do not come with you when you pass from this earth. Jeremiah 2.13, it's a verse in Scripture that points out that the people of God are going to, or, or that people on this earth are going to forsake God, who's a spring of living water, never want, never runs dry, but then they're going to turn, and they're going to form their own systems which are broken, and they'll never be able to hold water. Given that we as Christians look for the day that we'll finally see Jesus face to face, and the Almighty God who created us, we shouldn't need to invest time and energy into these things. Now, yes, um, just make sure that whenever. Uh, Use these things in more moderation, and we're uh, called so that, it doesn't, so that these things don't fracture our relationship with Christ in any way. Our youth pastor, Kevin Knight, is actually doing a series right now on the transforming power of the gospel. And in every single section of this, uh, of this series, he gives an overall point at the, that's listed at the top of every paper. And it says, the goal of the gospel is God. And so that's, that's our goal as Christians. Our goal is to use this gospel of good news that we've been handed to us by the grace of God, and we're, and we're to use it, we're to build a better, better, better relationship with Christ every single day so that when we, when we pass from this earth, we'll be able to meet Christ. We'll be able to see him face to face, and we'll be able to spend the rest of eternity with him. Now, to accomplish this goal, just like any other goal that you may have in your life, you need to list out steps. And so my analogy here with me going to college in the fall is to, despite what any of y'all who are in college right now may think, I'll, I'm, I'm going to try and get a 4.0 GPA. And so that's going to be my goal when I go to college in the fall. So, but obviously, I can't, just, I can't just have a starting point, and I can't just 
wing it and think that I'm going to get a 4.0 GPA and it's just going to be magically handed in to my lap or anything. I'm going to have to list these steps and so like, say like doing my homework on time, doing my homework correctly, um, studying for tests, um, building better relationships with my teachers and all things of that matter. And that's to help me accomplish that goal of maybe eventually getting a 4.0 GPA, even though it may, deem, may be deemed impossible. But, uh, but this, this ideology needs to be applied to the life as a Christian. And so we, uh, we as Christians, we have this goal that we are to use this gospel that we've been handed us to build and build and build a better relationship with Christ daily. God calls to be sanctified daily. And so while we're on this walk, the moment that you become a believer, you're, you're immediately on a walk of being sanctified. You're in a walk of sanctification daily. And our goal, we're called to better and better and better that relationship with Christ, gain more and more understanding every single day. So whenever you pass from this earth, you're not worried about the, other, the temporary things. You're not worried about the things that Solomon deems as vanity. And then whenever you pass from this earth, you build and build and build that relationship with Christ so that whenever that day comes, you breathe the last breath on this earth and you, open, and you see the gates of heaven. The first thing that you see is God with his arms wide open saying, welcome home. For this life on earth, our goal as Christians is to use this gospel that we've been handed to us and to build and build and build a better relationship with Christ. And these things that are deemed as vanity and meaningless they don't do anything, and Solomon makes the point that they gain you nothing when it refers to this walk. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Another word that uh, maybe some translations uh, use is contrary. And so these two things are contrary. They're opposites. They don't go well together. So obviously the things of the flesh are not going to help you when it comes in relation to the things of the Spirit. When you're in your walk with Christ, these things of the flesh aren't going to help you. They're contrary. They're not going to help you, and they're not going to gain you anything when it comes to your walk with the Lord. And so Solomon makes this point, because these things that he deems as vanity, they do nothing but hinder or fracture your relationship with the Lord. They gain you nothing. The second point that can be made from this passage of Scripture is that no earthly action can change God's plan. And so he, Solomon, this is, a, this is a big part of this chapter right here. It's verses 4 through 11. And we actually have drawn, you can draw two subpoints from this point in verses 4 through 7 and then 8 through 11, which is where Suggs is gonna, or Josh is going to pick up. <laughs> and so uh, beginning in verse 4, uh, Solomon says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and around and around goes goes. Around and around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the, nor the ear is filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, and it has already been in the ages before us? There's no remembrance of, of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The first subpoint that can be drawn from this second point here in Scripture is that life is full of cycles. And so this is trying to, Solomon uses these cycles listed here in Scripture to try and show believers that any action on earth won't change anything. And so 
when we focus on life by itself without Christ, it's futile. And so these, and out of these verses, four through seven, uh, the, first, the first couple of verses, four through seven, Solomon is giving a few natural cycles that resulted from when God created the earth, like say, like sun rising, sun setting. And so he's trying to let believers know that these cycles and processes have been working one way and one way only since the beginning of time. And so this is trying to say that no fleshly actions on earth will ever change, uh, will ever like change the world because God has already, has already laid, it, laid his plan out before us. And he's working through it as we speak. And so th- these fleshly actions in the end are insignificant. This sort of idea needs to be applied to the life as a Christian. Psalm 139 talks about how each of you are fearfully and wonderfully made and how God has knit you in your mother's womb. So God's already got a perfect plan for each and every single one of you. Nothing that you do in your life is going to like surprise him or shock him in any way because he's already got your life laid out for you. He's already got it situated. Proverbs chapter 3, this is actually also another verse that Solomon wrote. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understanding and always submit to him and he will make your path straight. Dr. John MacArthur, going back to John MacArthur, um, he points out that Solomon's intention in verses 4 through 7, his, Solomon's intention was to point out and underscore the futile repetition of human activity. And there's that word again, futile, uh, vanity or meaningless. So the meaningless repetition of human activity and how Solomon presents life as an endless cycle of activity, which by itself, I do want to emphasize that, by itself does not bring security or meaning to human life and experience. The by itself should be emphasized because life by itself is life apart from God. And so that's what the whole idea of vanity centers around. It centers around finding satisfaction and fulfillment that's apart from God. Whereas life with God is the only place that you'll find fulfillment and purpose. Acts 17, 27 says that they shall seek God and perhaps find their way, feel their way toward him and find him. God designed us in his image so that we'll naturally desire him and not these temporary things of the world. As we've been talking about how life apart from God is vanity and how man gains nothing, or how nothing you do will shock God or change his plans in any way, Sugg's about to transition and talk in the end about how life apart from God is wearisome and how Solomon explains that, wisdom, that Solomon, Solomon, who's deemed as one of the wisest men to ever walk on the face of the earth, even deems wisdom being vanity. And then he'll later round all this up and give an application to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And so uh, thank you for your time so far. Here's my buddy Josh Suggs. Good morning. Uh, as Ryan said, I'm Josh Suggs. Uh, I'm a senior at Hickory Ridge High School. Uh, I play baseball there. Um, and as he said before, I've gone to Pitts my entire life. We were dedicated on the same day here. Um, but praise be to God that I've been placed in such a good church home, a, a church that is such a gospel center group, um, and that gives us many opportunities to serve on the mission field. For me, uh, I was able to go to Delaware last year with the youth group. Um, this year, I'm able to go to Malawi, Africa. Um, to spread the gospel. Um, But let's get right back into it. Uh, The beginning of verse 8, it says, all things are wearisome. Uh, Solomon touches on how everything in this world is wearisome. Not anything new or anything that has been will be remembered. Um, In the story of Howard Hughes at the very beginning, despite having every material need and every material item that he could want, he still lived a a wearisome life. He lived in a wearisome state. See, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31, it gives a solution for all mankind who may be in a weary state. It says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. 
They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. See, whenever man walks in the light of the Lord, they're not going to be weary or live in this sort of state because Christ is what's going to fulfill them. See, he's the only one who gives us an eternal hope like no other. See, these earthly actions result in weariness while God's plan for you ends in fulfillment. See, God's plan will never fail. Verses 9, 10, and 11, in the literal sense, Solomon is talking about the condition of the world and how no possessions that man has um, or anything they have will be new and also how mankind in the long-term scheme of things will not be remembered at all. Verses 9 and 10, it says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything in which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. A big phrase in these verses that is said is, there is nothing new under the sun. This phrase can be kind of confusing since we live in a modern world, a modern technological world, um, that we have an access to a lot more things, see, than they did in Solomon's time. Well, yes, that's right, but this isn't what Solomon's referring to here. Solomon's pointing out that the same worldly things that people desired back then are things that we desire today and that people are going to desire in the future. Things like money, things like power, things like status, and things like pleasure. Things that even Solomon craved for the most of his life. See, we're going to desire it today because we live in a sinful state. However, these things are, these are all things that are never fulfilling, but instead they're disparaging to human life. They have no meaning to it. In verse 11, Solomon defends the point in these verses that no earthly action or desire will change or alter God's plan for your life. Because verse 11 talks about your life on earth and how it will not be remembered. Solomon further makes the point that life apart from God is meaningless by pointing out that the vanity of life, making an effort to leave a legacy. See, leaving a legacy is what the world wants you to do with your life. See, I think of a quote that Nicholas Zinzendorf said. He said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. It's that simple do what you need to do, preach the gospel, and let Jesus be glorified. See, leaving a legacy is hard. That's what the world wants you to do. See, not many people are going to be remembered five or six generations down the line. See, people who leave a legacy that I think of, I think of people like Galileo, people like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. But out of everyone who has ever lived on the face of the earth, there's a slim few that have been remembered. Let's take, a, let's take an example. Let's take a guy named Joe. He works in an office. He works a nine-to-five job, Monday through Friday. And he goes to church some Sundays, but then one day, suddenly, as sad as it is, he dies. You see, in his office, he's going to be replaced, right? They're going to remember him, but people are going to move on. That's how the world is. It's just going to keep going in the cycle. They want to keep going, keep going faster and faster. See, his family will remember him. As sad as it is that he died, but five or six generations down the line, his family probably doesn't even know his name. See, leaving a legacy is what this world wants you to do. But God doesn't necessarily care if you're remembered or not. What he cares about is that you glorify his name. He designed you so that you can glorify his name. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, all this toil that man does on earth, it's not going to change the greater plan and purpose that God has for every believer's life, and that is to glorify his name. See, glorifying God's name is what's important. And then Solomon moves on to verse 12, and to deem that even wisdom is deemed vanity. Solomon begins his introduction in verse 12. 
he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. See, we need to take in the full scope of what this means. Solomon is the king over Israel. He has an entire kingdom at his feet. He has dignitaries from other kingdoms come and bow at his feet. But take an example of a servant in the kingdom of Israel. See, they don't get these same views that Solomon does. He gets to see all the paganism in these other places. He gets to see their false hope. See, Solomon fell into the temptations of these false hopes. But then God in his great glory opened his eyes. And during his search of acquiring meaning from wisdom and knowledge, he discovered the wisdom, I mean the limits that knowledge and the pain that wisdom will bring forth. It says in verse 18, he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. You may wonder how this is like kind of possible. Is it even possible? But it's because of the fact that we're becoming more in touch with the realities of a fallen world. We're becoming more in touch with the, fall, uh, the reality of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and the fall that occurs in our lives daily to sin. See, don't get me wrong. He who increases knowledge, being educated is, being, is good, it's fine. But focusing on education over other things can really hurt you. A study done by Ohio State University, which is a part of the secular world, it says, when people become smarter, one of the costs they pay is lower memory accuracy. You begin to pursue more and more because you forget the basics of what it came from. I think of being in high school, right? When you're in kindergarten and first grade, you learn about two plus two, four plus four. You know, you learn addition and subtraction. When you get to high school, you get into these uh, algebra classes, and you have these basic formulas you have to remember, and they just keep growing on top of that, and they grow and grow, and eventually you're going to forget something somewhere, and it's going to mess your whole line of reasoning up and how you're going to be able to think and what you need to do, but you go back to learn this basic, and then you're going to forget what you just learned. It's a cycle. It's going to happen. You're going to forget more and more. When you chase knowledge more and more, you're going to forget the basics of where it came from. Verse 13 talks about how Solomon went to studying and exploring the wisdom that is offered by a fallen world. But then he goes on to explain how it was a burden for him and how it was a burden for us to study. Like the Hebrew word for study that is used, it's referring to your mind. It's referring to your will. It's referred to your emotions. See, like it's not easy to study. Like it's not easy to do this stuff. It takes time. It takes effort. See, one professor said people will retain about 50% of what they hear for the first time in terms of learning something in school. Studying builds up your knowledge, but it also increases stress on you. It's going to increase stress on one. And this is what Solomon is referring to here. It takes a toll on us to learn physically because of how finite we are. See, I'm reminded by the end of the book of Job, right? Job, who went through so many trials in his life, you know, he was so... uh, loyal to God, and then finally, he, he kind of lost it, and, and God responded to Job, right, could you do all of these things that I do in holding the universe together, could you do any of this stuff that I do for a day, and after Job had heard all this, the response of God, he says in chapter 40, verse 4, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? See, God is infinite, we're finite. We are small. He is big. What we lack in knowledge and wisdom, he doesn't. Verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, the wickedness of the human race becomes even more evident. It becomes evident to Solomon because the wisdom that he has was not earthly, but it was from God. 
See, God opened up his eyes and it allowed him to see. Don't get it confused. God's wisdom is good. God wants us to ask for his wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. See, what we are is crooked, and we can't make anything straight. But God, the chief God alone, can do this. See, Isaiah 35, chapter 4, it says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come and save you. He will save you. Jesus will come and save you. We're crooked. We can't make anything straight. I'm thinking if you think of an iron rod that's like this, you can't bend it to make it straight. You have to add heat to it. Jesus' blood is what makes us straight. That heat is like Jesus' blood. It's going to make us straight. We are bad. Like, we were once enemies to God. Some people in today's society think, you know, I might not be a Christian, but I'm on good terms with God. You know, I'm like this. No, you're an enemy to God. If you're not a child of God, you're an enemy. You are against God daily in your sin. See, Romans 5, verse 10 says, For if we were enemies to God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Jesus alone makes us straight. Jesus alone makes us justified through faith. Solomon ends the chapter by saying, For in much wisdom comes sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Joseph Benson, an 18th century commentator, uh, said, We as humans are often deceived with knowledge, false knowledge, and often mistake error for truth. See, we get caught up in what people want us to hear. We get tangled in these nets of what people want us to hear. I think of the media today. They don't care how true the story is. They just want to get it out first. They want you to get clicks. Like if there's a breaking news story, click here, click here. It doesn't matter how true it is. They just want you to hear it. Like we get tangled up in these nets. And I think of what we get tangled up into the nets today. There's a false theology going around. And I'll even call it a philosophy because it shouldn't even be a theology. They, they say if you give money to God, your life's going to be easy. Your life's going to be good. That's not true. We know with 100% certainty that God is sovereign and that he is working out his will among those who follow him. See Romans verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, it's not promised that your life will be easy or good when you become a Christian, but that it's all working together for the will of God, which is good. Because in the will of God, Christ is glorified. After you become justified through faith, as Romans 5 verse 1 says, you begin your lifelong sanctification, becoming like Christ daily, surrendering your life daily to Christ. True Christian life is not going to be easy. In reality, it's going to be hard. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. And I want you to listen to these words. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But even in your persecution as a Christian, if you are one, you're going to experience a joy. You're going to experience a love that you might have never have felt before. And then either when Christ returns or you die, your glorification is there. You're gone from the sin that strikes you dead daily because you are in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, giving money isn't going to make your life easy, but in faith, you're going to truly experience a life, a wonderful life with the king. See, some people here today may be thinking, have I been focusing on the wrong things in my life? What I chase, is it really true? Is it really valuable? 
And I want to focus on the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 11. It says, the words of the wise are like goats, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. See, a goad is this long stick, and it has like a metal end to it. And this is what the shepherd uses to protect his flock. So if an intruder like a wolf came along, it can protect its flock. See, the books in the Bible are our goad. These are the wise words given by God. This is what he wants us to use. This is what we need to be safe. This is what we need to be firmly planted to know where we stand. This is the book that God speaks to us through. See, it says at the end of that verse, they're given by one shepherd. That shepherd is Jesus. See, he is the word of God. He is God. And if you want to truly seek Jesus out, you need to be in here. You need to be in the Gospels. You need to be in the Old Testament when you see the prophecies of Jesus, to know that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who's going to save you from your sin. He's where our wisdom comes from. He's where we should seek our knowledge and wisdom, and that's in Christ alone. I want to end with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, If Christ is something in your life, he is everything. If he isn't everything... He is nothing. See, being a Christian is 100% surrender to God. It's not 25%. It's not 50%. It's not 95%. It is 100% surrender to the king. It's giving up everything you've ever won. It's loving Christ more than anything you've ever had. Anybody that you've ever loved, Christ is more. See, I want you to think about this. If Christ is going to be something in your life, he has to absolutely be 100%. And if he isn't 100% in your life, he's absolutely nothing to you. And it's vain. It's heavy. has no meaning if he's not 100% to you. Have you been pushing Christ out of your life? Have you not been focusing on him? He's the supplier of everything we need. Run to him. His arms are open. They're waiting for you to run to. See, God, he ran down to the sea. He brought you up, and he breathed the breath of life into you if you became a Christian. His hand's right there. Just take it. He wants to be your eternal wisdom. He wants to be your eternal knowledge. See, he doesn't want you to be stuck in the stuff that's a vapor. They'll be gone tomorrow. See, his presence is an open door. If you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, we'll have our pastoral staff down below. Come talk to them. They want to talk to you. They want to show you who the Lord of lords and the King of kings truly is. Let us pray. God of mercy, God of love, we are in awe of who you are. We know that what you've done to our Lord and Savior, Jesus, that you've sent him to save us, God. I pray that if there is one in this room who doesn't know you or know your son, I pray that the spirit moves their hearts. I pray that they they chase knowledge and wisdom through you, God. I pray for the believers that they do the exact same daily. God, you are already victorious. And let us win with you in your name. Amen.